Welcome to National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast. I'm Fiona Still, NDIS Sector Transition Manager at National Disability Services Victoria. Today we're going to talk about community participation and discuss how we can design effective supports to facilitate this. Community participation has long been a policy aim of the State Disability Act, is identified in the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and is a key stated driver of the outcomes in the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Community participation is a significant activity funded by the NDIS, being an element in approximately 50% of all plans. There is a need to clarify what it is and exactly what the scheme is paying for. To discuss this topic, I'm joined by two studio guests. Firstly, today we have Professor Christine Bigby, Director of the Living with Disability Research Centre at La Trobe University. Chris has been researching social participation for people with intellectual disabilities for a long time. She's going to talk about some of the aspects of a recent study completed by the centre in collaboration with NDS and funded by the National Disability Research Agenda. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. We also have Clover Laurier, Head of Disability Services at Outlook, which is a provider of support for community participation. Prior to this role, Clover worked for NDS as a Senior Sector Support Consultant supporting the Victorian transition to NDIS. So she has a broad range of knowledge of service delivery under the scheme. Welcome, Clover. Hi. We will be particularly talking about different types of community participation and how to design effective supports to enable people with intellectual disability to participate in their choice of communities. So we're going to get started with a few reflections on your research, Chris. In the research that you've just recently undertaken, you looked at developing models of good staff practice, program design and organisational strategies when supporting community participation of people with intellectual disability. What was the driver for this research? When you look at the importance that community participation has had over many years as a policy aim, and then you look at how much progress we've made, it's actually incredibly little. What we've managed to do very successfully, I think, is increase the community presence of people with disabilities. And I'm going to talk particularly about people with intellectual disabilities. So more people are out and about using public facilities and we've closed institutions But actually, we haven't been very successful in achieving community participation, however you conceptualise that. And that's one of the problems, is that community participation is an incredibly ambiguous type of concept. We use interchangeable words. We use things like inclusion, integration, participation, and we add on words like social or community. We talk about the community or a community or my community. And communities are based on lots of different things like place or people's interests or people's political persuasions, people's identity or people's ethnicity. So community participation is this sort of word that can mean many, many different things. It can be very narrow in one life domain or it can be across all of life domains. And it happens in many different arenas. We talk about often economic participation is sometimes confused with community participation. And there's very different ideological standpoints about the ideas of community, that they're nice, warm, fuzzy places where everybody has the same sort of values and things. So one of the problems has been there's almost no conceptual clarity about what we're trying to achieve. And that's a real problem because 
for people with intellectual disabilities and their families, they need to know what's being offered in the new world of NDIS where they can choose. They actually need a much clearer picture of what programmes or or services or individualised support might offer to them and therefore how to choose. Service providers actually need to know what they're designing and delivering, uh, why they're providing support, what the intervention is, so that they can be accountable for what's delivered. And governments and the NDIA and other funding bodies need to know what they're funding and they need accountability for the use of those funds. And as researchers, we actually need much more clarity about measuring community participation and what it is so that we can look at how do we know what's working and what's not working and what are good programs and what aren't successful programs. So that's the reason we undertook this, to try and get some conceptual clarity into what we're actually talking about, what we're funding and what we're trying to achieve and what people with intellectual disabilities will gain from the type of programs that we might design. And that clarity is important in this era of funding under the NDIS where it is individualised and individually focused and it means different things for different people. And so actually having that clarity will help us in the design of those services and supports. What did your research tell you, Chris, about what was key for people with disability in terms of community participation? What were some of the ways that that was defined for them? Well, what we did was we we looked at the literature around the different types of interventions that had been designed in order to achieve community participation. And embedded in those different types of interventions were different types of of programs and of organising community participation. But the outcomes in terms of community participation in general, if you take each of those three different types that we identified, the outcomes for people with intellectual disabilities were quite similar. They're things like personal development, development of skills, self-esteem and confidence, development of increased social networks, whether that's just friends or, or acquaintances, and very positive subjective feelings of enjoyment and happiness. So whichever version of community participation you take, the outcomes tend to be fairly similar. Chris, can you tell me a bit about the three different types of community participation that you identified in the literature? So what we identified was three different ways of conceptualising and and supporting community participation. One was around building social relationships. The second's about identity and belonging. And the third's around an idea of called convivial encounters. And I'll talk a bit about each of those. They combine the elements that you, if you see the ICF framework, it defines participation as being about activities, people doing activities in places with other people. That doesn't tell you very much. But what we identified was three different ways of combining those three things and giving different priorities to different aspects of them. So the first one, which is probably the one that is most commonly understood, is about community participation as social relationships. And the aim in these types of programs is to build social relationships between people with and without intellectual disabilities. And if you think about O'Brien's idea of community presence versus community participation, this is what he was talking about. So the difference between just being present and having relationships with people in the community. So social relationships are key to participation. And the types of programs that do this try and match people to volunteers who people might form friendships with. 
They try and create connections between people who share a common interest, maybe by going to a sort of place where other people go with those interests, or teaching people with disabilities how to build those skills and, and follow them through, how to build relationships. So the logic of this type of program is that if you support people to build relationships, then that's a really important means of being able to engage in a whole range of social activities. I mean, most of us do our community participation with other people that are our friends or our family or just people that we share a common interest with. If you look at this type of program, though, it tends to privilege some types of relationships. It really tends to focus on relationships that aren't paid, so it's not having a relationship with a support worker, and relationships with people without disabilities, and where there's some sense of sort of reciprocal, something going on there where people are sort of sharing resources with each other. But actually, this type of, of program, even though it's very common in the literature and around, there's very little data about how effective it is. And it tends to be focused on people with quite mild intellectual disabilities. And there's examples of programs like this, are things like circles of support, leisure buddy programs. And there's a new program that was developed in Sydney based on something from the UK called Gig Buddies, where people are matched with a buddy to go to an event, music event or any other type of event in the community, quite a lot go to sporting events. But as I say, there's very little research around how effective those programs are and they do tend to exclude people with more severe and profound intellectual disabilities. So the second type of community participation that we identified is around belonging and identity. And to quote Ed Hall, he suggests that this is a sort of transformative process which moves towards a sense of attachment and belonging to people that are close in your particular interest area and people that are more distant but share the same sort of interest. So this type of, of participation often takes the form of creation of segregated groups where people do activities that they're really interested in, that they may have real talents in, drama groups, sport groups, self-advocacy groups, where people create relationships with each other, so with other people with disabilities, but they also create an identity of being an artist or of being a sportsman that they can then share with other people in the general community. So you participate in maybe the Special Olympics or in a particular art programme, but then you come across other people with that same identity by going to broader sports programmes or by participating in general arts exhibitions and things like that. So it's a mixture of developing people's skills, developing relationships with each other, but then developing an identity and relationships with other people in the community who share that interest. So it's really a program to launch and develop those skills to be more inclusive in a broader community. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily developing skills. It's about developing an identity and, and an interest in your particular area of talent. So it's not a readiness program like you go and learn art in a segregated program so you can go and join a mainstream art class. It's providing really skilled support to develop as an artist, to develop an identity as an artist, so that then you can go and exhibit your work or sell your work to other people who are interested in art. 
And there's a whole movement called outsider art. I actually went to an outsider art exhibition at MoMA in Tasmania last year, which was fabulous. And some of the work from Arts Project Australia, which is this type of program, was exhibited there. And the same with Special Olympics. And there's an organisation called FIDA, which is an association within the AFL, which, which runs football competitions for people with intellectual disabilities. So they have dedicated teams. But They also get coaches from other football teams and they go and play exhibition matches in the mainstream sort of football arenas. So it's a way of developing your talents, but also then sharing that identity with other people who are interested in those sorts of things. These are really interesting programs. They increase people's skills and confidence and peer relationships, and they're a very important outcome from that. There's not a lot of evidence about how successful they are in developing wider social connections. But certainly from our research, the ones that we looked at were very successful. So I think they're quite, they're really emerging programs that we need more evidence about. Chris, tell us about the last one, the Convivial Encounters. So Convivial Encounters is a concept which I've been working on for for quite a long time now, which comes from urban geography. And the idea is that people have social interactions with other people in the community. They're not just sort of mingling in public places where you just pass people by. And they're not friendships. They're not sort of long-term relationships. They're encounters where you have a, a shared identity or you share an activity with somebody and there's a sense of pleasantness and warmth. So you might belong to a community group, you might belong to a yoga class, you might go and be a volunteer at the Cat Society. And in that context of being a volunteer, you share the identity of being a volunteer with other people and you have interactions with people and they're usually quite friendly interactions. Now, you don't become friends, you don't see those people outside of that particular context. But within that context, you're exchanging interests and you're exchanging pleasant interactions. So that's a sort of solid type of convivial encounter. You may also have more fleeting convivial encounters, often in the supermarket or in a bus queue or on the station. You might share a couple of words with somebody next to you because you've both got the identity of being, you know, a consumer or a traveller. So that's what I mean by convivial encounters. And they're very important on their own. So they can be very important for people uh, who are fairly socially isolated in terms of affirming them as people. They may lead to friendships, but they may not necessarily lead to friendships. And they tend to happen in places where they're not segregated, where there's just lots of other people from different backgrounds with different interests that come together to share a particular interest. And what we know from the research is that you can actually design places where you can foster the idea that people will have those interactions. And many community groups are designed and lend themselves to being able to facilitate interaction of their members by the way in which they're organised, by the types of activities that they do, by the sort of leadership that's exerted within the group. So it's actually trying to find those sorts of groups that really do foster social interaction within them that's important. And we also know from a very interesting piece of research we did a couple of years ago that some some things help interaction. So if you go out into the community with a dog, then people are much more likely to talk to you. 
I think everybody knows that, but we, um, led by my colleague Emma Bold, proved that if you're a person with intellectual disability and you go out into the community with a dog, people are much more likely to talk to you because it breaks down those barriers and you're much more likely to have convivial encounters with other people. And for this type of community participation, there's much more robust evidence than any of the others. And we've done quite a lot of this type of work in Australia. And it's it's also been a way of trying to reframe some of the traditional things that day centres, particularly day centres out in the country regions, have done quite a lot in the past. They've supported people to be part of community groups. They've supported people to have interactions with members of their local communities. So it's just, it's thinking differently We're not about building friendships and it's not about a particular identity, but it's about fostering really positive interactions that may be short or long with other members of the community. So the community is a welcoming place and there's a a really pleasant exchange and warmth there for the person to want to go and have more social encounters and to participate more in their community. And the community might be, it might be the local golf club, it might be the shopping centre, it can be lots of different places too. So it gets away from this idea of one, of a place being a community. Yeah. Because everybody's interests are different after all. Clover, can you tell us a little bit about some of the programs and things that are done at Outlook and the supports that you provide to people to assist them to be part of their community or participate in their community? Yeah, definitely. I think... In total agreement with what Chris has been talking about, I think something that Outlook does really well alongside with a lot of providers across the state and the nation is the convivial relationships in community and assisting our participants to build, whether it's a long-term or a short-term sort of relationship in, in the ability to be able to access community, however, meets their needs. And something that Outlook does really well is by way of our community centre that we have built out of the travesty of a flood in 2011 and um, building a community centre that was for access for all of community and then enabling people from other disability services to access our our community centre as well to build another area where people could convene and have convivial relationships. So that's something that is a premise and ethos of Outlook and what we aim to achieve and do. And all of our programs, and I think it's really interesting listening to Chris because we do strive to integrate into all of our programs and on reflection, 98% of them would be convivial and we're striving to make them more long-term and help an individual identify their identity, where they belong, what they want to do, what their skill base is, how do they become independent, how do we sort of move away and bring in the informal supports and the unpaid supports and enable a person to have a fruitful quality of life, which is really, really difficult on all levels. Chris, can you tell us a little bit from your research about how to support, how best to support convivial encounters. So let me give you an example first of a woman we'll call Chloe, who is supported by an organisation, a bit like Clover's probably, to have a range of different convivial encounters through her week. And this is a sort of snapshot of what has been organised for her and very carefully organised for her through the staff and the program where she goes. 
So she's 27 year old. She's got an intellectual disability. She doesn't use words to speak and she has very low vision. So she doesn't communicate particularly well, but she understands what's going on around her. So she goes to a local primary school once a week where she helps for a couple of hours shelving library books. And many of the children recognise her now and they all say hi to her. So that's been organised for her. She goes once a week to a local swimming pool. She goes the same day at the same time. So she meets the same people. And she's made a relationship with a particular older woman and who goes regularly. And they often walk up and down the swimming pool and smile at everybody else and everybody says hi to her. She's part of a small team that's organised by the service that she goes to and they have a contract to deliver newspapers in the local area. So that means that she delivers newspapers to businesses. So she interacts with people that she meets on a regular basis at those businesses and she delivers them to houses and often she will interact with people that she meets along the way. Once a week she has lunch at a favourite cafe where she's recognised by the people behind the counter, though they come and go. And the organisation that supports her has established a social enterprise which grows produce and they sell that produce to the local community. So she works there and that gives her a chance to interact with the people from the community that are coming in. So she has lots of those sorts of convivial encounters during the week, but all of those things have been very carefully orchestrated to make them happen. And that stuff happens behind the scenes. And I can talk a little bit about how that works, if you like. That would be great, Chris, because there's a lot there. People would have to know Chloe very well, know what she likes, know what she wants to do. And those things that just happen, the extra bits that happen, the woman in the swimming pool, there's a great structure and a a lot of planning that's gone into that, I, I guess. So one of the staff that we interviewed in that type of program said to us, she said, it's very, very personal. It's flexible around the person. It needs to be what they need it to be. And then we need to develop the program around that. It's very purposeful and very planned. But it looks to other people like it's not. We don't try and fit people in. We build things around them from the ground up. So what they do is they start with the individual and they really get to know the person. They know what their interests are, what their support needs are, any strengths and weaknesses in terms of their particular impairments and their support needs. And so they try and build a program around that person. But the service also creates opportunities, not only for that individual, but for more than one person at a time. So The service often creates things like social enterprises or establishing a class in the community where individuals that go to the program can also go and that creates opportunities for them. And then the third aspect of of any sort of program like that is knowing the local community, local businesses, local events, the local government, all the things that are happening and the people that make them happen uh, in order to, to sort of match people to those things. So it's a really skilled set of working at an individual level, creating broader opportunities for more than one individual and understanding how to create things and work with and take advantage of the opportunities in a local community. It's very skilled work. Absolutely. And there's that making opportunities, but also being able to capture opportunities that come your way, that it's something that's a lot of planning. 
Clover, can you tell us a bit about what NDIS allows people to do and, and what's some of the things that have been done at Outlook? The beauty of NDIS is that it does allow an individual to be able to look at whole of life and be able to access all of that. So the funding is not restricted by way of any means because the world is your oyster to a certain extent. However, again, agreeing with Chris, all of those things need to be done to assist a individual to have a convivial relationships within the community, but there's a lot of back of house work that needs to be done within that. And and the NDIS funding doesn't stretch that far. So we have to be very strategic and pragmatic by way of how do we build those relationships with the local community to create those opportunities? How do we discover what areas are out there, what community facilities are accessible, are amenable, are attainable for individuals to access or require some further education in that there are people here with an NDIS plan who are consumers who would like to use your services. And we're here to facilitate that. We're here to support that. But we need also to educate the broader community. So we're in a bit of a catch-22 situation where we do have a lot of individuals with fantastic plans, with great opportunities. And we we are the people here to help them realise that but it's very difficult to to plan ahead or to do that when we're looking at that we need 95% of client-facing time. We have to be ready to go as the customer walks in the door. So we're constantly reassessing ourselves by way of what sort of back-of-house infrastructure we require and what kind of positions we require and what kind of skill types we need by way of staffing at that ground floor level right up to our senior managers to ensure that that can happen in the most efficient way possible because we've got no extra money to spend on that sort of stuff. Because what Chris is describing is something that's a program that relies on intimate client knowledge of clients' needs and wants and strengths, but also opportunities afforded by the community. Now, Chris, Mm. you wanted to comment on that. I think, too, I I think we need to challenge, in a sense, some of the NDIS thinking on this. Like the moment or the, the moments of convivial encounter are just really the tip of the iceberg. And what we should be aiming for is not to have a support worker like a limpet attached to a person all the time. And that seems to be what the NDIS thinks is fundable. What we should be funding is creating the opportunities for convivial encounters, but also working with then the people that are in those particular contexts so that they can provide natural supports for the person in the environment. So a lot of work that organisations do is about working with other members of community groups, for example, um, in a thing we call active mentoring. So mentoring those other people in a community group so that they can understand how to support a person with intellectual disabilities, quite severe intellectual disabilities, to be engaged in the activities of that group. And if you and the negotiation and the setting up of that support and then the support to the supporters is really what should be being funded. We shouldn't be funding this sort of one-to-one support all the time. That's sometimes necessary, but not 
always. What we need to fund is setting it up and then monitoring and troubleshooting if things change. And ideally, the role of an organisation or a service should be facilitating those things and not actually doing it in the moment. It's enabling those others in the community to do that support. So I think we need to rethink and try and influence, I guess, using some of the research and some of the practice experience, how things like community participation are funded. Chris, so to do this, there needs a lot of um, work done by services. Can you tell us a bit about some of the skills that you found were really important for staff to have? So in a big picture level, there's a whole range of uh, micro skills for disability support practice, and I'll talk about some of those in a minute. There's a whole set of community work skills around mapping and analysing communities, networking, negotiation and advocacy with communities, And fundamentally, there's a lot of skills around teamwork. The services we looked at all worked in teams. Micro skills are something I think that are really important for workers in setting up opportunities and in resourcing community members to provide support. So fundamentally, it's things like active support, which is an enabling relationship between a worker and a person with disability to enable them to be engaged and what we call active mentoring, which is mentoring other people to do active support. Uh, Things like enabling risk, understanding about the positives associated with risk, how to stick with somebody's preferences at the same time as minimising risk, supporting decision-making, doing task analysis, and importantly, tailoring your communication to the level of communication of the person that you're working with. So... We've been working on these micro skills for a long time and have developed some training packages, ones around active support called Every Moment Has Potential, which is available free online. And we've also got one called Supporting Encounters, Making Encounters Happen. And again, that's an online resource that's got a lot of examples of those sorts of micro skills. Some of them, for example, are things like if you're accompanying somebody to the shops, then you need to make sure that you seize the opportunities for encounters to happen. So there's many, many missed opportunities that we identified as we were looking at what was happening out in the community. When you might have somebody who goes to a shop and is supported to go and make their order but actually doesn't quite know how to do it or the shopkeeper doesn't quite know how to interact with the person. So the role of the support worker is to sort of take the measure of that situation and maybe step in and just sort of interpret maybe what the shopkeeper should be doing, how they should be responding, or to just prompt the person with intellectual disability to point to what it is they want. So it's those sorts of micro-understanding the situation and supporting and bringing those interactions to happen. Often people with intellectual disabilities miss a lot of those sort of social signs that we all sort of take for granted, and the support worker can step in to do that. Support workers can also step in to redirect the attention of people in shops or people in community groups to interact with the person rather than with the person who might be with them, making introductions, making interpretations. And 
And one of the key skills is actually knowing when to intervene and when not to, when to let things run. We saw some wonderful examples where support workers just step back and let a piece of uh, social interaction happen, even though it might be fairly unconventional, but it didn't have, there were no great dangers involved in that. So there's some really good sort of clips that demonstrate how you might use those skills to support encounters. The other things that we observed is bad practice in terms of taking people out in big groups. If you take three or four people out into a group, into the community, that sort of puts a sort of sign around them, don't talk to us, Uh, we belong to this worker. And I think we've all seen groups like that out in the community. So avoiding things like groups, avoiding speaking on behalf of people, thinking very carefully where you're going out, going to the same place, And respecting the types of relationships that people with intellectual disabilities may begin to form with other people in the community and not imposing our standards on them. You know, we came across a a terrible example where one particular woman went regularly to a hairdresser and had built an understanding relationship with her where they involved hugs and joking. And the support worker tried to sort of intervene in that and say, now, now you have to behave properly in this type of situation. So... There's a, there's a lot of skills that we often underestimate that support workers need. And similarly, there's a lot of skills that they need in sort of understanding and reading how community groups work. Is this a community group that is going to be welcoming to somebody, one person with an intellectual disability? Does the leader of this group support the idea or Do they think people with intellectual disabilities should be at the sheltered workshop down the road? So trying to read the tenure of a group and how willing they might be to include somebody is a a real skill. And trying to negotiate with the leaders of the group, identify whether it's a group that has what we call a sort of integrating activity where there's opportunities for people to interact with each other. Chris, you've really easily and very clearly identified that need for specific training to really maximise those opportunities. I think one of the other things that we're seeing that sits alongside that is having the right people to give that training to and to develop in our disability support worker group, you know, to actually provide the training and support to people, but to also have the right people in those roles as well. One of the things that we're seeing in the sector is a lot of emphasis on values-based recruiting in terms of people who are going to want to develop those community participation opportunities to take the best advantage of those things and to provide that training to them. Can you tell us a bit about, from your experience, Clover, in the sector about choosing? We are looking at a a workforce that is growing. There is more money in the sector and there's more demand. But how do we get those right people? Can I just say something before yes. she answers yes. that? I think we have to we have to recognise that values and attitudes are fundamental, mm. but they're not enough. No. Mm. We can't just run on well-meaning people with the right attitudes. They have to be skilled as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think we've forgotten about that in the last little while and they have to be skilled at working with people with who have particular types of impairment so the skills you need in working with somebody with an acquired brain injury are very different from somebody with an intellectual disability and are different again from somebody with a, a sensory disability so it's skills specific to the 
group of people that you're working with. There's some that are generic, but some that are specific. Sorry, Clover. So you're going to talk about how difficult all this is. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. So um, we're always recruiting at Outlook, and it is one of the most difficult things that um, I've found as part of the, the role that I have is filtering through some of the applications that we get, that we, we get overwhelmed with applications and some of them are really, really fantastic and some of them are absolutely abysmal and poor. So we will give everyone a chance and recruit and we do look at definitely the values and I resonate with a social justice kind of approach that an individual has that people are people and we all have the right to dignity of choice and life. So I like to hear that coming through when we interview someone But we're also looking at, and some of the best people we've recruited in the last six months come from the retail and hospitality sector. They are hard workers. They work odd hours. They deal with customers thinking critically, making decisions really quickly. And they have been put into lots of different situations and they've been able to be self-managed and handle that on their feet. Then we, we empower our existing staff who have quality experience in working with individuals with disability to empower those new staff coming on board and help them have the get the right skills to work with individuals. Then we look at niche type of training specific to the needs of the clients that are coming through our door to ensure that we can meet their specific needs on an individual basis. So it's not an easy answer and we're sort of potch doing it as we need to, but we're finding some of the best people that we've recruited have come from those diverse industries of hospitality and retail. But the important factor here is that it is that mix and it is really important that we have the right people, the values, the beliefs, but they also have the critical skills and training specific to the work they're going to undertake. Definitely. And I would argue too, certainly from our research in supported accommodation, supported living situations, having really good practice leadership is critical to being a good support worker. You can't just employ somebody and say, off you go. You've, As an employer, you need to support and to guide their practice, to give them regular feedback, regular supervision, to work alongside more experienced people so you can model good practice. People need coaching. You know, it's this is skilled work and people do need leadership. And what we're hearing is that, you know, organisations are being so squeezed that they're not being able to provide that sort of practice leadership to workers on the ground. Uh, so, you know, I'd be really interested to know how you do that in your organisation. Well, I would agree. We're feeling very squeezed and we're probably not doing it as well as what we would hope. But we do actually have a position called a practice lead. And so um, we only have one at the moment. And I'd be looking to expand on that because we have a large workforce and it's growing all of the time so that they are they're not directly linked to any specific program or group. They work with our staff who are supporting people with higher physical and intellectual needs to mentor and coach and troubleshoot. So before anything becomes a crisis or incident, that those staff feel that they've got someone to go to on top of team leaders who are very, very hands-on in roles. So any of our direct frontline managers would be able to step in and work on the floor at the same time. So again, it's something that we need to do bigger and better, but it's most definitely something that we would agree with as part of the practice. Because at the end of the day, it's the background work that 
programs do. And then often in some programs, it's the actual interaction between the person and the support worker that makes the enormous difference to the quality of, of what you're doing. But I think we've got to hold those two things in mind, that the support worker practice is really important in direct practice, but it may also be the underlying orchestrating of opportunities and providing coaching and support to people in the community to do that individual support to somebody that's really important as well. So I think maybe when you're recruiting, you need to think about those different roles and do you have people that occupy the sort of community development type roles and then some people that work with individuals and some people that work with community members. So if you've got a big organisation, you can sort of set up so that you've got that range of skills within your organisation and the range of sort of opportunities that you can create. And then an individual can come along and say, well, I want this and this and this off your shelf. And the role of the service provider is to sort of put all those things together along with some very skilled staff. Which really brings us to that whole ethos of the NDIS and being able to do that. We don't have... I would challenge the funding models right at the moment to enable that, but that's why this research is so critical in being able to point to what are good outcomes for people to have that individual's choice and control, to be able to participate in their choice of communities in the way that they want. Clover, have you got any final remarks for us? Well, yes, I would just like to say, adding on to what you've just said, Chris, is that that's going to be my major take home from today, is that I think I know within um, Outlook and what I'm doing within the organisation is looking at our organisational structure by way of sort of management to senior management to team leaders. But I think I need to reconsider and look at some of our frontline staff and look at the tiered approach there and who's doing what and where do we need to recruit and where have we got some skill gaps and how do we enhance that. And I think that would be quite useful for a lot of services out there who are maybe just recruiting disability support workers in, training them in what they need to do and then off you go. But maybe there's a different, there's levels that need to be looked at there as well specifically rather than always looking from team leader up at those sorts of different levels. So I will be definitely taking that home and having a look at our org structure and how we can better that into the future. Chris, have you got a final reflection for us? I've got two, I think. I think it's really important that if you're setting up a or you're running a community participation service or a service that supports community participation for people with intellectual disabilities, you need to be really clear what type of community participation you're trying to support, what your program logic is, how does your program work. But I think importantly too that supporting good community participation has spin-offs for the rest of us. If people are included and having more convivial encounters in the community, that benefits everybody else in terms of shifting community attitudes and building a more inclusive general community. And many of these organisations that provide this sort of support are also creating social capital. They're creating social enterprises, they're creating social groups that are beneficial to everybody else in the community. So community participation isn't only something that benefits the person with a disability, it benefits everybody else and builds a more inclusive community overall. So I think we need to work out exactly what we're doing and try and do it as well as we possibly can based on some evidence, I think, rather than what we, you know, than ideology that this is a nice thing to do. It is a nice thing to do, but it's important that we do it correctly. (laughs) 
Well, I don't think there's one correct way. I think there's lots of correct ways, but that we do it in a very thoughtful, logical, planned way. It is a nice thing to do, and it's important that we do it in a way that's informed, that we can build on and actually have that evidence that can drive change. And it might be change in the way things are funded under the NDIS. It might be drive more funding within that information linkages and capacity building, but it's based on something that we know works and we know where those resources should be directed. I'd like to thank Chris and Clover for their insights and time today. It's been really good to talk about community participation, both from research and practical perspectives. It's important to reflect on that knowledge that we've gained on the research work that Chris and others have done in this field. And it's important that that underpins the ways that we continue to develop good practice models that will enable people to have real choice and control in their lives. As with all areas of research, which Chris, I'm sure you'll agree, there's always more work to be done. And uh, it will be important that that informs ongoing development of the NDIS. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'm Fiona Steele, the Victorian NDIS Sector Transition Manager, and I wish to thank you all for listening to this podcast. If you found this episode valuable, have a listen to the other NDS Sector Development podcasts in the series and press the subscribe button to be notified as soon as a new episode is released. So if you want to find out more about our research, you can come to the Living with Disability Research Centre website at La Trobe University, where all our reports are freely available to download. The website address is www.latrobe.edu.au backslash LIDS, L-I-D-S, or just Google Living with Disability Research Centre, La Trobe University. Do you have a question about the NDIS, quality and safeguarding or disability employment? The NDS Help Desk has the answers. As a member of NDS, you have unlimited access to the Help Desk, where you can get answers to your specific questions. You're also able to tap into the expertise available at the Knowledge Hub with our extensive database of answers to the most commonly asked questions. Don't wait to find the answers you need. They are readily available at nds.org.au forward slash help desk. If you are not a member, head to the NDS website and click on become a member to sign up now. The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 